calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello, I'm Larry Tao, Content Director at CFA Institute. Today we have uh, Bob Brown, CFA, Chief Investment Officer and the Executive Vice President at Northern Trust with us. Thank you for joining us, Bob. Pleasure to be here. So let's get right into it. Can you highlight for us the critical elements in your global asset allocation process? Yes, I think one of the most distinctive uh, parts of what we do is that we have two separate horizons, one that we call the strategic horizon, and so we intentionally focus on a five-year-plus view of the world, and we complement that by also having a rolling tactical view, which is one year, not short-term, not 30 days, not uh, even uh, three to four months, but we think that yin and the yang of going back and forth between what we consider to be a long-time horizon and an intermediate horizon is very important. And then in addition to that, we also have a top-down, bottoms-up process, quantitative and fundamental. And so there's this yin and yang across multiple perspectives, and we think that's critical to get a holistic view of the market. Maybe tell us a bit more about how you do your, uh, make your uh, strategic asset allocation process decisions. Sure. So once a year, my senior team and I and a group of subject matter experts, we retreat. Uh, to take a look at that longer-term view of the world. So every May, uh, our research team puts together required reading material, what they think might potentially drive the investment themes for the next five years. It's also uh, complemented by a whole batch of quantitative data. And then we first really discuss what we think are going to be the macro and political themes that drive the capital markets over the long term. And a recent example would be slow growth angst, where the low growth environment due to a variety of reasons in the post-crisis world has been critical to investors. Getting that framework correct has been absolutely essential. So the macro themes are the important factor that you look at in making strategic allocation decisions. Yes, yeah, so we determine the macro themes. It's a top-down process, very thematic, but then the end result are the quantitative numbers that go into our optimization models that drive our asset allocation across our entire multi-asset class business. You, you spoke about the uh, slow growth uh, environment. Maybe tell us a bit more about other factors you're looking at from a macro perspective. Well, the other factor that really started to hit home, obviously, in the past year, but we have identified some version of it now for several years, is populist roulette. Uh, obviously, the Brexit vote and, of course, uh, President Trump's election, let alone things that are going on across continental Europe, it's clear that both the slow growth environment and what we call identity politics are driving populism and therefore political volatility. Mm -hmm. Up until recently, we thought given the constraints of officials in power that that political volatility would be complemented by policy stability. That is, there'd be a lot of rotation by whoever's in power, but they would just be stuck with current methods for addressing it. And now we're less confident than that. Now we can see political volatility leading to policy volatility as well. And the Trump administration may be the best example of that. How would you match your market views, such as higher political volatility, to your asset allocation decisions? Well, we certainly think it's going to be a low growth environment. And uh, so we think that the political volatility and 
potentially policy uh, volatility as well, is going to lead to gridlock effectively, uh, at least in the Western developed world. And so it's not quite clear to us, and we're evolving as we go along, whether or not there's going to be a substantial change to really remove this low growth environment, whether or not there's enough appetite across a politically divided spectrum to really drive substantial change in policy. And getting that right as a macro investor is going to be key uh, for the next year. So we absolutely believe that in this environment you want to be globally diversified, you want to tap into the opportunities and risk management opportunities across the world, and whenever possible have a bias to be fully invested because not only is it a low growth environment, it's going to be a low return environment. And in order to really enhance your return, you have to be quite cautious about being too cautious and uh, letting cash build up in the portfolio and sacrifice total portfolio return. So you mentioned you make long-term decisions and then short-term decisions mm -hmm. for the tactical views. Maybe tell us a bit more about how you make your tactical decisions. Yeah, so we meet monthly to review that rolling one-year view of the world. So it's really important for investors to visualize a future beyond the current news flow. It's so easy to get caught up, even more so today, given all the data that's available to us, to be a victim of recency bias and to really think that what's happening today is more important than what happened six months ago or that what might happen six months from now. And so we spend quite a bit of time visualizing that future one year out. We revisit somewhat casually the longer term themes established strategically. But more importantly, we're looking at valuation, performance of the markets, performance of the portfolio. The first gut check is how we done relative to expectations. And is the portfolio performing the way we think it should perform, given what's happening in the capital markets? And then we, we use quantitative methods for uh, evaluating this in a sensitivity analysis way, uh, potential changes in the portfolio. And in general, we target tracking error of about 150 to 200 basis points relative to our strategic portfolios. Right. Professor Schiller was just on stage talking about uh, his CAPE formula. What type of evaluation metrics do you guys look at? Well, we use a variety of methods, including the, uh, the CAPE. Uh, we find that is useful only to determining whether or not the markets in the long run are historically cheap or expensive, but developing a tactical asset allocation process around it, less so. Mm -hmm. And so we ha having said all that, we do look at a variety of valuation metrics, whether it's price to book, Cash flow yield, we think, is one of the best predictors over an intermediate horizon. So that is probably driving us more so than CAPE. Uh, we think cash flow yield is a good uh, prognosticator. But there's no single summary statistic that we rely upon. We look at a variety of valuation methods, and then we spend a lot of time on central bank policy. Uh, that might be a little less important going forward than relative to the last eight years, but without doubt, as a macro investor, you really have to understand what the Fed is going to do, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, and increasingly the Bank of China. So in a global asset allocation framework, how do you compare relative valuations, say you know, valuations in European markets versus the American markets? Well, starting point is certainly our sense of normalized values, both in the market compared to itself, so where we think normalized cash flow yields and PEs are in Europe relative to where they're trading today, and then the ratios of the European market compared to the U.S. market or compared to emerging markets. So we triangulate. We look at a market relative to its own history, and then we do a cross-market comparison as well. And then we look at the opportunity for 
policy change at the fiscal level to create a more positive economic environment and capital market environment. And then also, as I said, central bank policy. Are we in a period of accommodation or not in that regional market? And so those are some of the, the factors we look at when we compare one market to another. Right. What about equity versus fixed income? Well, equity versus fixed income, we probably use a lot of the more traditional methods uh, that I just uh, referred to. So we're looking at a relative um, risk premium of equities to uh, fixed income instruments. But the starting point is also whether or not we have what the market likes to call a risk on position. Mm -hmm. I absolutely believe that you have to wake up in, as an investor every day and determine whether or not you are in a bullish pro-risk regime or a bearish uh, you know, off-risk regime. And that's not something you should be revisiting every day, but mm -hmm. you should need to know after deliberate analysis, what is the environment? And in general, our view for the last several years has been equities are going to outperform bonds for um, all the things I had talked about when we look at the analysis of monetary policy, mm -hmm. what we thought the fiscal environment was going to be, and the low starting point for yields. At the end of the day, investment-grade bonds over the long run are going to, are going to earn close to their yields. So mm -hmm. if you take a five-year view of the bond market, you pretty much know where your return is going to be. Right. Over one year, obviously, less so. Um, but uh, we absolutely believe that equities are going to be outperforming uh, bonds for the next uh, five years. Great. Fascinating. Uh, maybe talk a bit more about how you evaluate your performance and how your clients evaluate the performance. Yeah, well, you definitely have to triangulate. And it may be a little bit different, or there's certainly overlap between institutional and, uh, and individual investors. The institutional side, we probably all know that we have to compare ourselves to both peer group, uh, the databases that consultants maintain. Uh, are we doing the job we're supposed to be doing, which is primarily outperform an index, right. often on a risk-adjusted basis. And then also increasingly, I would say for the past several years, uh, making a factor adjustment to the returns is also important. So in other words, when we evaluate managers, because we also have a large OCIO business, uh, we don't give them credit for being structurally overweight factors that we ourselves can implement passively at relatively low cost. The same thing for fixed income. If the reason you're adding value is that you're just structurally overweight credit and you're not actively managing that position, we'll adjust that return. On the retail market, uh, it's also important to complement that index analysis with the reality of Morningstar ratings, all the public services that categorized you positively or negatively, mm -hmm. and then the underlying asset class return, the absolute performance is going to be important. Right. Because from a business perspective, you want several things going well. You want the category that you're in, such as large cap U.S. equities, mm -hmm. to be doing well enough that's going to be attracting flow. And then you have to do your job relative to your peer group and stated index, so you're outperforming in that asset class that's doing well. And for better or worse, that is the way I think mutual fund flows tend to go. Right. The peer group comparison is, is a little bit more challenging for asset allocation portfolios. Absolutely. Compared to, say, a pure equity portfolio. I know, all too well. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you deal with that type of challenges? You know, at the end of the day, you just have to take a longer term view. I think in the long run, uh, the, the, the peer group comparison is probably relevant mm -hmm. because there's a series of decisions that accumulate as a global multi-asset class investor that you ultimately have to own. Uh, like So, for example, we have a very global approach. Uh, we're probably more global than a U.S. bias 60-40 portfolio, even with the opportunity to own non-U.S. stocks. Mm -hmm. 
And we're structurally overweight emerging markets. We're structurally overweight uh, global real estate and uh, natural resource equities relative to what would be in a traditional 60-40 portfolio, even if the 60% is global equities. Uh, but those are conscious decisions that are apart. That's a strategic view of the market. And so if those asset classes are not doing well in the short term, uh, that may not reflect our tactical asset allocation decision making, but it certainly reflects our strategic uh, optimization thought process. And so we have to own that. In the very short run, I take your point, comparing a global asset allocation portfolio to another over three to six months, I don't think there's a lot of information there. Over three, five, let alone 10 years, there's a lot of information for peer group comparison. Great, you brought up an important point, conscious decisions versus unintended bet. So maybe talk, uh, tell us a bit more about how you make sure the, the bets you're making are exactly what you're trying to well, make. Well, that's the heart of my presentation later today. Uh, as a CIO running a large investment group and as a practitioner myself, I'm always wary of unintended bets, uh, especially on the fundamental side, because I think a lot of people in that space view themselves as stock pickers or in credit as this really hard-nosed credit analyst. Mm -hmm. But I like to remind them that you know, once you have 30 securities in your portfolio or so, you start to become a portfolio manager and not just a stock picker. And you need to be very aware of your portfolio risks. This may seem simple to people who uh, are CFAs, but I can tell you people with multiple years of experience, they tend to forget and be unaware of what's really driving their portfolio. And, and, and that is the unattended bet. Are you taking a factor bet? Are you underweight size? Are you overweight a particular sector? And you have to be really thoughtful before you spout the words, I am benchmark agnostic. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're benchmark agnostic in this business, uh, you better be really mindful of the, both the business risk and the investment risk. And I think increasingly that view without really tight portfolio risk analytics is going to be unacceptable if it's not already. You mentioned you make factor adjustments in your evaluation process, mm -hmm. and you mentioned factor bets. So factor investing is becoming an increasingly important trend in the asset allocation investment business. Maybe tell us a bit more how you use that process. Well, we take a very strategic view. We don't tactically allocate by factor. We've not found a way to do it, so if there's somebody out there, God bless you. We spend a lot of time in research trying to decide whether or not there's an opportunity to trade size versus value versus quality. Our approach is to take a thoughtful, diversified um, uh, perspective to see how quality, for example, combined with uh, value can create a more powerful combination to that factor exposure. So you get a really high risk adjusted return and get what our quant team calls intended uh, factor efficiency. That is, you get the factor efficiency you actually want. So once again, going back to the point of unattended bets, mm -hmm. there's a lot of smart beta slash factor based strategies that don't hone in on the desired factor as much as the uh, end client thinks. And there's a lot of unintended bets even in a, a quant-driven portfolio. And that's what we spend a lot of time on. We absolutely do not think all factor strategies are created uh, equally, in part because the optimization methodology and portfolio construction process that you use is absolutely critical and without doubt a differentiator between managers. Absolutely. I think many people believe the, the, the era that factor investing or return to purely investing on factors, that has been the past, that's, been, that's sort of in the past. Now it's more about understanding how your portfolios are positioned. So what actually is driving your portfolios? What are your views on, on that? Well, it's uh, in the, uh, my presentation, there's a, a, uh, 
a, a heat map over 10 years showing uh, the performance of factors uh, by ranking. And then you can just see the volatility there. And so the opportunity for dispersion, like in value factor, top quintile versus bottom quintile is absolutely huge in any single year and it's volatile through the year. So understanding that uh, dynamic is really, uh, is really important. Absolutely. So uh, I guess we're coming to the end of our uh, interview. So I have one more question for you. Uh, you've been in the managerial position for a long time, and we have a lot of young members watching, and uh, I'm sure they would love to uh, learn from you, uh, you know, the lesson you've learned over, over the years, how to actually, uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, becoming leaders of an industry. What are the important lessons? Well, without doubt, do what you're doing by attending this conference, either directly or indirectly, and, uh, and just keep on reading and learning. You know, throughout your career, you have to look for opportunities to re-engineer and develop yourself. Uh, recently, uh, at, the, uh, at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, uh, Charlie Munger uh, was referred to by Warren Buffett as a walking book. And, uh, and I'm sure that's true of both of them. And you just really have to love knowledge and information, I think, to be successful mm -hmm. in this business. So that's one thing I would say, even as a senior leader, where you think you may be more focused on managerial and business decisions, that still requires knowledge and development. Uh, you have to look uh, to both reading and also to classes, as well as most importantly, find mentors, find people whom you respect mm -hmm. and are respected by their own peers. and get to know them. Uh, I, I wish I knew when I was 30 what I know now. I wish I could go back 20 years and tell Bob Brown at 30 years of age, don't be so stupid, <laughs> focus on this particular thing and learn this lesson really quickly. And so, you know, these are traditional tools, but do it, institutionalize it into your career development. Think about how much time you spend each week reading something new and think about how many times a month you've met with somebody you can learn from. And, so, and keep track of it. Keep yeah. track of it. Because if you don't measure it, you can't improve upon it. So intellectual curiosity and then work with the right people. Absolutely. Those are lessons in life. Great. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you, Larry. Thank you all for tuning in. Copyright 2017. CFA Institute. All rights reserved. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.